Hi, welcome to Swordnut Radio. On tonight's show, you have Biddy, that's me, and we're going to be discussing all things combat, two-handed weapons, armour, and uh, possibly touch on LARPing, and which might lead on to a longer episode at another time. Tonight, I'm joined by... Me! Hello! This is Paul. Um, I am completely bereft of wit, having just come back off my honeymoon. My audio will be crap. I will talk bollocks <laughs> and otherwise take this, what, two or three hours worth of recording and have to edit it down to 50 minutes because I'm so crap. <laughs> that's normally how it goes. And I believe that's our lot this evening, isn't it? I think it is, yeah, yeah. Because um, it's the Christmas period. Having run a martial arts class for the last years, the one thing that you can count on is that during the Christmas period, everyone will want to do things. Everyone will want to, to be, you know, they'll be really keen on, on turning up and getting things done and having fun and all that sort of stuff. And then on the night, you'll get a load of phone calls and texts and things saying, mm, can't make it. Uh, the whole of November, the whole of December and most of January are like that. Yep. So my first top tip for anyone wanting to organize anything over this time of year is one, if you do organize something this time of year and get loads of firm, let's say organize, if you're going to start something and people turn up and they keep turning up, those people are going to be loyal. Those people are going to turn up for the rest of the year. So those, those people can be counted on. However, I would say don't organize anything this time of year because it's life. People have to, have to do life. Mm -hmm. You hear a lot of tales about people who's tried to start things up and, uh, sort of try to start a campaign or something and then it dies a death and it turns out they did it in November and they didn't put it two and two together that Christmas was coming up because it seems a bit far off but really yeah people find things to do and things they have to do and, and all sorts of obligations and work things and all and it's getting darker as well and so people just don't feel as motivated and, and they don't feel like they can or they don't feel like they, they really want to bother you know and come out and do things even though they know they're going to enjoy it there's just a thing that says oh it's dark sit hibernate it's natural everyone does that with that in mind we're probably going to miss loads of sessions <laughs> as as for tonight i think we had like four or three other people say they were going to yep. come and then yeah no it doesn't yeah but we're crap at skype <laughs> yeah the more convenient thing we're actually crap at which is a little bit odd really <laughs> perhaps we should do an entire episode about how crap we are at skype <laughs> i think every time we've recorded something on skype it's an episode about how crap we are i think i think if we're going to do an episode about how crap we are on skype i think we just essentially need to record 30 minutes of static and just publish that and we're so crap we <laughs> failed to record it so you know yeah. i promise you it was the best conversation in the world this is merely a tribute <laughs> so you know <laughs> something we do do on skype is um is inspectors we haven't done an inspectors episode for a while mm. i think we should do one of those pretty soon sue so, um Let's let's do the feedback. It's been so long since we've done feedback. A lot of this is is off Twitter. In fact, most of this is off Twitter. And apologies if I miss anyone off, but I've just sort of cut a line off at about October the thirteenth or something like that, just because uh, it's 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 a bit rubbish. I was going to say it's a bit rubbish to say stuff from months ago. Is I couldn't be asked <laughs> <laughs> to look that far back on Twitter. The first thing that I'm gonna mention here is that how we roll podcast um are, are great guys they're also based in manchester they're primarily um call of cthulhu 
but they have just started their 5e campaign. There's a couple of exciting things on there. The first is they did a crossover with God's Fall, and that's coming up very, very soon in the in their feed. In fact, by the time this gets published, it might already have been done. Um, I was uh, in the Twitch chat while they were doing that, and it was fantastic. The other thing is that there's also a character from our campaign in there. Yeah, which I... Was that you doing a guest appearance, or...? No, no. Um, what they do is... Um, or they have they have a Patreon, so everyone listening now, go on howweroll.com um, and... Or, or I think it's howwerollpodcast.com and go to their Patreon thing and give them money. Because uh, Joe, the DM, has just had a baby, so they need money. They need issues, apparently. Um, because babies need shoes. They have a thing on Patreon where if you donate, so like five dollars or more or something like that, you get to you, you get to give them an NPC, and uh, or, or they'll use your name, or you can design an NPC for them. So I just said, how would you feel about doing this character from this episode? And I gave him the link. And he said, he went, that's brilliant. I know exactly where to use that. So I gave him the the background of who this character is and the character uh, that they're using is Penn and Mechis Brockett. So let me get this straight. The guys at How We Roll probably know more about this character than we do because they've had the background. Yeah, so at least Joe the DM knows more about it than you guys do because I had to explain how that character works. And the thing is, it is it's definitely the same character. It's definitely in the same continuity. Um, so Essentially, the, the two stories are going to be happening at the same time, just in different universes. And Penin is going to be in both stories. What they've done is, well, firstly, one of the guys, uh, Dave, voices Penin. But what they've done is, uh, one of the characters is a, is a gnomish bard. And as he rolled his character up, one of the, the things you get from the entertainer background is a love letter from a fan. And so he decided to run with that, to say he's got a stalker, and Penin is his stalker. And any time he crit fails a perception roll, she turns up. Hmm. Just out of nowhere. What, just out of <laughs> starts, Can you sign this for me? Yeah, just like properly, properly fangirls at him. Which is, works absolutely fine for that character. I- I've, I've given him a mechanism by which he can do it like in-universe as well. So... Go have a listen to them. Uh, it is the episode where she appears for the first time is called The City of Dagmar. It's the third episode in their series. Um, but it's very good. It sort of goes from, yeah, prepare yourself if you're going to go. It goes from very sort of light and farcical to incredibly dark, just on the, on the turn of a die. Um, you know, they're sort of, uh, doing all the, the yuck, yuck, slapstick kind of stuff. And then suddenly there's, like really dark, dark kind of, you know, the sort of uh, storyline where if you saw it in a sto- soap opera, they'd have the after credits thing saying, have you been affected by any of the issues in this That's story? This number. Yeah. 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 More feedback. I've grouped this all together by person rather than by date. So it might be a bit anarchic. Firstly, I want to send you a picture. This is from uh, Kurt Magley, who does, um, Unfortunately, I can't retweet it. For some reason, Kurt, I'm sorry. I really want to retweet you because you do loads of awesome little memes and pictures and things. And I really want people to see those, but I can't retweet you. For some reason, Twitter won't let me do it. Um, if you can figure out why, let me know. 
I'm going to show you a thing that uh, he sent us based on the um, based on the Conyers Caves episode, okay. which I think is brilliant. It's some of my favourite stuff there. Yeah, that should be with you. <laughs> okay. So it's a it's an octopus in a very small fishbowl. Um, with a sort of a kid bringing this octopus home, uh, and it's the caption is his name is Brian. <laughs> I think it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, that um, is really I don't know. Is it Ian Baker did the cartoon? It's very fun. I'll I'll see if there's a way that I can somehow put that on Twitter because that's funny as hell. I've got to I've got to mention that when I imagined me carrying around him on a stick, I did not imagine the ball that big. <laughs> if, I, if I'd known he was that humongous, I probably would have used him in combat a bit more. <laughs> if, if, if nothing else, something to hide behind. For the benefit of the audio, the bowl is about four foot across <laughs> in the yeah. cartoon. So, um, I, I, I was kind of gutted that you never actually used him as a flail weapon because I was imagining he was the, the bowl was maybe a foot across. But I, I did like how you used him in the end, like a really cold, calculating. Horrific death. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, but you were proper murder hobos in that one. That was, that was uh, good and refreshing. And uh, Kurt also said that uh, he was loving the addition of the monks. You're talking about Alex, uh, otherwise known as Dax, mm-hmm. who came in playing Frost on the Hillside. Now, for various reasons, Dax is not going to be able to join us regularly. So we've worked out um, a way that he can sort of be absent and, and the way and it works in the story. So... But yeah, uh, Dax is a lot of good value. He's, he's a really, really funny guy. We love him. But it's just unfortunate he can't make it all the time. At, at the time we're recording this, I haven't yet put up the, I have, well, I haven't yet finished editing the Once Upon a Time episodes. Um, but once there, there's three hours worth of that. Either we'll have absolutely no listeners whatsoever left at the end. <laughs> yeah. Or, or we'll have got the, um, the tabletop crowd. Actually, let's go through it. So, uh, Kurt also, said, uh, say, yeah, he's loving the addition of the monk. I was waiting for the holy hand grenade speech. They're talking about his accent, mm. which I, I quite like. I think he has to do that now. Um, Kurt also sent us a load of little memes about, um, you know, sort of playing on the Lorry Elf thing. Yeah, yeah, they uh, Which is great. He bombarded us with that shit. And again, I'll try and get a way to, to retweet him and, and give him credit for that because that's really funny. Iban Ruith. Uh, and again, I apologise if I get your name wrong. Over the the months, has <laughs> got in touch a few times to say, let, "I'll just go through them." So it was, uh, "Does a holy shit hit your AC?" Great way to start my Sunday morning. <laughs> uh, listening to Sword It Radio's last episode while creating a character to get in uh, a new Five E campaign. My fellow bus commuters look at me funny. I think those were both Connie's caves. Excellent. Uh, yeah, that, that was too, that, that that session was a lot of fun. And he said. A new Swordnet Radio and a new player too. Really enjoyed it. Looking forward to more, which will be the first episode that Dax was mm-hmm. in. And then for the second one, uh, basically as soon as I'd published it, uh, I got a Twitter alert and it just said, in quotes, do not piss on the sacred bush. <laughs> and he says, bursts out laughing at 3 a.m. Um, said, I love, I love frost. My flatmate might not. <laughs> <laughs> This is from a while ago, talking about the the last discussion episode we did, which is uh, he says, I, while I stare lovingly at him, I push his elbow aside and brain him with the pommel. Tough love. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the shield is the weapon is a mantra some people I practice with like to repeat a lot while they smack you around. Um, Iban also does Hema in Spain, 
and then we had I'm trying to pronounce this uh Lobi one Kenobi. I think his name's actually Paul Lowe. Uh, what he did actually really nice, uh, he said that, that, that there was a, a gamers list that he'd put together on Twitter just to be updated and, and see when, when things were coming out. Um, and he said, much of Twitter is so vile, this list is not. Which is rather nice. I try to be as vile as I can, really. But he put us on there with some really, really nice people. But it, was, it was people like God's Fall, it was people like the Leviathan Files and Gamers Plain and Stories Fifth Age. And I, I feel quite humbled to be considered among them, really. That's, yeah, it's really nice. So that's the feedback. And uh, if I've missed anyone, I, I do apologize. But, um, yeah, uh, one of the reasons that we've been a bit behind on things and, uh, we're, we're breaking things up into smaller chunks to, to publish rather than, you know, two hour episodes, it's going to be 45 minutes to an hour per episode, really. Um, is that I spent the last three weeks getting married and going on honeymoon. So uh, there was that. And uh, I'd just like to say thank you as well to all of the other podcasters who um, gave me congratulations and, and all sorts uh, and, and nice feelings about that. Because I just posted up on, on um, Twitter and this, obviously on Facebook, I was getting married and, and loads of people just came out saying congratulations and uh, things were awesome. So that, that gave me the warm and fuzzy. So thank you very much. And a beautiful wedding it was as well. I particularly enjoyed the pub quiz. Which is not your traditional um, kind of wedding activity, but it was really good fun, that actually. Yeah, me and Cheryl are very much into board games, and we also um, knew that no more than four people at our wedding would know each other. <laughs> so uh, we thought what we'll do is we had a, a vague Harry Potter theme. So what we thought we'd do was divide everyone into houses. So we did the sorting hat thing. I was just like pulling names out, pulling um, uh, names out of a hat and, and, and shouting and stuff. That was the teams for the pub quiz. And it was all questions about us and, and things we're interested in. But what, what we did was say, now you're in these groups, you have to play a game, a board game, a card game, something, you know, that, that are, you know, they're all dotted around and you have to play a game with those people. And so everyone mingled and it got people going. And the important take-home message of this, of the entire night, was that no matter who you are, what age you are, what kind of background you are, how easily offended you are, the single best party game to get people talking and breaking the ice is Cards Against Humanity. Oh yeah, totally. Uh, there's, there's, there's an awkward ten minutes while people are kind of like testing each other out, kind of like gently <laughs> edging across the ice to see if they fall through, and then you realise that Holy shit, grandma's filthy. Right, let's crack on. <laughs> you know, a, a bit more credit to yourselves in regards to the Harry Potter theme of the party, because it was, it was really clever and it was subtle but obvious when you noticed it. In that when we first came in, me and Karen, we, we noticed all the, um, not banners, what's it called? Bunting, bunting yes, bunting up. We went, oh, a bit of decoration, fine. But we then realised that when you split everyone up into their housing, the bun- it, it, so it came from the centre of the room into each corner, and each length of bunting represented a different house, so it was the house colours. So you just instantly knew, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm Gryffindor, so I'm over in that corner, or whatever. And the, and the snitch Ferrero Rochers were fabulous. <laughs> they were absolutely brilliant. Which was um, Ferrero Rochers. I, I'm, I'm assuming America has Ferrero Rochers. They do, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, Ferrero Rochers with the Ferrero Rocher label removed, and then little wispy golden wings glued to the top of it, and it looked just like a golden snitch. It was brilliant. 
yeah, there's a lot of effort sort of put into things, and we actually bought remarkably little out of that. There's um, Jen, the uh, the bridesmaid. There's, we only really had sort of we didn't have formal roles for people. We didn't want to put people on the spot or um, do that thing of saying, "Well, I'll have ten best men" or whatever. Is you know, there's there's um, Cheryl's best friend uh, and my best mate uh, were the people signing the register, the witnesses. Um, but it was that or like say, well, who's going to be the best man? Well, let's have 17 people at the front because how do I choose? You know what I mean? It's, and then, well, what do they do? Do they all have like seven words in a speech kind of thing? No, come on, let's, let's just let people relax. So, um, uh, we did that, but Jen, um, uh, Cheryl's witness, uh, basically made all of that. Um, there was very little that was actually bought as a product to ever. So that bunting, for example, she made it by hand. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, um, that all the, was it the, the bouquet of flowers was, um, pages from books and one was from Deathly Hallows. Yeah. Uh, it was the chapter where it says always, you know, that, 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 that bit. Um, and half of them were from the book Magician, which is my favorite book. I possibly didn't see the bouquet, the bouquet in that case then, because I'm not entirely sure. What so what? So the the pages were like origamied into flowers. That's it. Yeah. Ah, fabulous. But yes, uh, listeners in America don't want to hear about my wedding. So. <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. Okay. So let's just discuss it, and then we'll we'll see what happens, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll make it sound coherent in post. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll make me sound coherent in post. You, you're going to sound like a moron. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so we did this once before, but it ended up being me talking at you for an hour and a half-ish uh, and being really boring because we didn't really have a point. We didn't really have a coherent set of things to do. So what we're doing now is uh, we, we've asked people on Facebook and Twitter and all sorts for questions, and people have really come through for us like, tons and tons and tons of questions and they're along the same lines as what we talked about previously so it, it should be pretty good um but uh you had an idea didn't you about how we can sort of stay on track and keep it from being a, a yawn fest i did indeed and I'm, I'm assuming you want to know what that idea is now don't you yes indeed like we haven't talked about it at all previously <laughs> no no not. in fact um yeah, through the magic of radio, we'll have this discussion like we haven't had it before. Or we haven't done any prep. <laughs> well, we haven't done any prep. Yeah, so basically we're discussing, does reality have a place in tabletop role-playing games? And if so, where do you draw the line? Hmm. And that's going to keep us on track. So we're specifically talking about weapons and armor. We've got loads of questions about that. And to keep it from being discussions about how things are used in real life, which we just go on ad nauseum about um We'll, we'll, we'll bring it back to that issue of, but what does it mean for your game, really? Uh, so, um, where do you want to start? Um, do you want to start with the, the Facebook questions? Uh, yes, yes. Okay, cool. So a lot of these are from people I know in the world of HEMA, Historical European Martial Arts, uh, and it's kind of their bugbears about um, weapons in, in RPGs. First question uh, from Clive Thomas. Some of these weapon weights are hilarious. I had no idea a two-handed sword weighed 15 pound. Right. Okay. <laughs> this is the biggest bugbear, I think, of every person who actually does historical European martial arts is the weight of weapons. Yes. 
there was a trend in the Victorian period for overdoing the weights of things when they're recounting tales and things, just to make people sound a bit more romantic and heroic. And uh, the thing you hear most of, often is a, a ten pound sword or a ten kilo sword. It's interchangeable, even though a pound is half a, less than half a kilo. To sort of put that one to bed once and for all, I know of only two or three swords which are that heavy. One of them is an executioner's sword from India, which is just supposed to drop on someone and kill him. And so if you miss him with the edge, then the blunt force will do it. <laughs> it's absolutely horrendous. It's it's in the Royal Armouries wow. in Leeds. Yeah, the, the back edge is 10 mil and it's six foot long. Christ. Yeah. So for Americans, 10 mil would be about, um, what? just less than half an inch um it's insane the other one i know about is a 10 pound sword which is uh, a bearing sword and it is not supposed to be used in combat at all it's supposed to be born as bearing sword um in front of someone who's in a procession and it's got a huge decorated golden scabbard and most of the weight is, is actually in the scabbard so there aren't really 10 pound swords out there that are supposed to be used um if it had realistic blade geometry a 10 pound sword uh, design let's say like my long sword would be about 10 meters long so i mean that might be useful i don't know but it'd be pretty floppy uh so that that, that doesn't really exist and a two-handed sword let's say a, a two-handed sword as vihander we would call it generally which requires two hands like a, a five to six foot long sword some people might call it a montante Generally, those weigh about two and a half kilos, uh, well, two to two and a half kilos for, uh, a pretty simple, uh, pretty simple one, just a cruciform hilt, just like a longsword, but bigger, um, and maybe up to three kilos for, you know, the really fancy ones with the wavy flamberge, uh, blades or, uh, and the big complicated hilts and the spiky things and all sorts. Yeah, weapon weights, no. I mean, we talked a little bit about this in the Warhammer thing we did. Yeah, I mean, the, the the size of the Warhammers that people are supposedly supposed to be carrying around with them is just insane. Yeah. I mean, you, you need a horse and cart just to, you know, move it about. <laughs> yeah, and as soon as you start swinging it, then its subjective weight becomes so much more because of the, the, the lever effect. So, uh, or because of, centri- is it centrifugal or centripetal force, which whichever it is. Hmm. It's, it's really a thing of wanting to make people seem more heroic. And I think it's a little bit superfluous, really. Um, it's, it, it's a, it's a very primitive, um, very Victorian idea. Um, just to say, oh, he was so, you know, strong that his, his sword weighed 20 pounds and he could cleave through things. Uh, An anime has really picked up that. So people don't really question it. Um, it, it is complete bollocks. Does it have a place in your campaign? What do you reckon? I think you do have to put some kind of arbitrary weight on the objects, just, so people aren't carrying around 20 swords with them. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that. <laughs> yeah, finding the balance. I mean, saying that is the what is the weight limit for a character in D and D? It depends. You know, it's, it's you know, you're talking 50 pounds. Yeah, you know, maybe yeah, 50 50 pounds for a sort of light carry. Um, you know, up to 100 pounds maybe for a strong person to be to be carrying things like that. My, my, my brain doesn't really work in pounds or anything. So, I mean, is that like a sensible, achievable human? 25 kilos, let's say, would be yeah, a, a, you know, a, a pack, which is, uh, according to manual handling regulations, is the maximum amount one person can attempt to lift on their own. So yeah, I, th- I think, does it have a place? Uh, it basically boils down to how much do you want your guys to carry? I mean, if, mm. if you're 
if you want to play it completely realistically, then you give everything a a realistic weight limit, and then I suppose they can lug quite a bit round with them. Or if you want to limit to, it, yeah, I suppose it depends what you're mm. trying to achieve. I guess. I mean, I think the the massively oversized weaponry maybe has a place for um, oversized monsters. You know, for for NPCs that are yeah. godlike okay. or you know can swing stuff around because. Yeah, you'd want something in keeping with that size. So a giant, for example, might have, you know, a 12 foot long sword that, that weighs 20 kilos or something like that because they can. And more importantly, it's realistic for their size. Mm. But if you have a PC try and pick up that sword, no, that's not going to happen. And I think more than anything, it, uh, if you make the weapon ridiculous, it kind of takes away what you, as a player, can do with it. If you think to yourself, okay, I've got um, a staff. Everyone knows a staff. You've all, Everyone's picked up a stick at some point. You know how much a stick weighs. Fine. No one ever talks about 20 kilo sticks, right? People with staffs and monk characters and like that can sort of talk about how they can use it in various ways. But as soon as you talk about a 15 kilo sword, or sorry, 15 pound sword, you're limiting yourself to I hit it with my sword yet again. Mm. And, and, and again, we talked about that with the Warhammer episode. Yeah. And I think it kind of behooves you as a player, if you're a martial class with a massive weapon, to think, hang on a second, what can I actually do with it? And don't be defeated by it saying, oh, this weighs 20 pounds or whatever. No, no sod it. Let it weigh what it weighs in real life. Bring that to your GM. Even if the book gets gets it wrong, say, I can make this a lot more interesting to play at the table if we say, sold the weight in the book, here's what it is in real life, and uh, here's mm. some videos, you know? Because there's loads of videos out there of people doing sparring, people doing techniques that can show you what, you know, what your options are. At least get you thinking. And I think that the heavyweights just weigh you down mentally more than... They do. Else. Yeah. They definitely do. Okay, so yeah, next one. Yeah, I could talk about weights forever. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see this one. Uh, Jack Gassman. Basically, fight systems that result in combat having no tactical choices. This is me asking for things that irritate them in RPGs. So, fight systems that result in combat with no tactical choice. I think this is a reaction against spells. So, people who use spells can have lots of effects on a field, but the fighter is supposed to be the tank, up front, hit things, that's it. And you're done. Yeah. um, To a certain extent, I mean, we've kind of covered this previously in the even if your character is just I hit it with my sword, the, there's nothing to stop you from using your imagination and think of interesting ways in which you will try and hit it with your sword. Mm. So, okay, fair enough. You can just try and swing at it, or you can try and swing at its leg because you want to hobble it. Mm. Or, you know, or you, you might try and, you know, slash its face because you're hoping to blind it or whatever. Yeah. Or you might turn the sword around and use um, what uh, a mort slag, which is to, to hit something with the uh, the cross guard. Uh, you yeah. hold the sword um, with, with bo- the blade in both of your hands and you use it like a hammer. Um, so maybe to, to hook behind their, their knee if you don't break it and things like that. So you're foregoing damage. Now as, as, a, as a GM or as a DM, I would say, okay, you're trying to do this effect, which isn't really the rules, so let's trade off for that. And that's what that's what rules do, you know. You look at the, the rules for battle masters and things like that, and it's you're usually trading one thing for another. Or maybe just getting something a little bit extra that, you know, for, forego some damage to do an effect. So if you want to trip the guy up and do some damage, then you can try that. The rules as stand say you either do one or the other. 
I, I've yet to actually play a system where I felt limited in combat. I can imagine there are definitely systems out there that haven't really... I, there's probably quite a few really political systems out there which don't really have a very fully works out combat system, but I've yet to play any of those. Mm. But I suppose the the closest thing I've, I, I feel to a limiting system is maybe a system that uses uh, modern weaponry or futuristic weaponry, guns and stuff like that, because mm. people might feel a bit limited. Well, all I can do is just shoot them. Because, I mean, at least with a sword, there's all various different things you can do. But again, it's it's kind of down to your imagination. Do you shoot them in the leg? Do you shoot them in the arm? Are you trying to shoot them in the centre mass? Uh, if you're shooting them with a blaster, do you want to possibly try and shoot the thing that's side, side of them so it showers them with hot sparks in, into their face? Yeah. You know, basically, you're only limited by your own imagination. And mm. this, again, falls back to having practical, usable weapons allows you to... You know, I think there's, I think there's a a, a, a hangover there from maybe from like three point five. So you had all these things where if you want to do something, okay, that's fine. Let's make a rule for that, and here it is in canon. So you got to look up that rule and find it, and whatever. But it's imposing, to my mind, too much order on combat, and combat is chaos. And mm. you can teach people techniques, and you can teach people, here is the optimal thing to do in any situation. Uh, if your opponent's here, you do this. And if they're, they're here, you do that. And if you've got four of them, you do this. But ultimately, combat is chaos. It's a dance where no one knows what music's playing. To, to say, actually, here's the rules for absolutely everything um, is fine up to an extent, just to make a level playing field, make a balanced game. But there is absolutely no problem with coming to your DM and saying, how about, um, just so you know, I want to do loads of really freaky stuff in combat and try new things. Are you okay with just spending 30 seconds or so to agree how it's going to work and then do it? Because there's like a fear, as a, a, and this is from my perspective as, as a DM, there's a fear of saying, if I establish a rule now, does that mean that we have to then carry on and I have to remember that house rule for every time they want to do that? The answer is no. Because it worked that one time. That's it. So your character did something, uh, out of left field and say, um, say maybe, uh, got his two-handed sword and swung it at this creature and missed. But then on his next go, what he wanted to do was plant it in the ground and swing around it and, uh, grab the guy's head between his legs and ram his body against the sword, thus dismembering him. I don't know anything. And you come up with a rule to say, okay, here's the rolls we're going to make for that. You don't have to remember that for next time and you know even if he wants to do exactly the same thing because it's chaos it's a different situation it's a different enemy it's a different day could have had a good breakfast could have not had a good breakfast you know it could be on uh stone one day and on dirt the next it doesn't matter so just feel free to let people improvise with their combat and you as a dm can improvise the rules it's fine just as long as that is agreed up front that you're just mm, going to make it yeah. up and next time we'll make it up again. I, I actually, um, I met Joe from How We Roll podcast and we were talking about Battlemasters. Um, because it was one of their characters, uh, one of their, well, one of their players, Niall, plays a Battlemaster and he doesn't really get how it works. So what they're going to do is going to break it down and do a little solo thing with him so he can work through it. And what I was thinking, um, something I'd, I'd quite like to do with Karahad as well is rather than say, okay, you've leveled up, pick your maneuvers. Okay, you've leveled up, you get access to all of these maneuvers, and as soon as you use one, it's locked in. 
or you can make one up on the fly. Say, I just want to do this, and then we'll write that down, and you can have that. Yeah, okay, that's nice. Yeah. And so as more get unlocked, I mean, they can pick from a list, or they can just make up another one, you know. I don't see anything wrong with that, because a Battlemaster's manoeuvres are... They seem... Well, you played a Battlemaster, didn't you? I did, yeah. And and your manoeuvres seem to be... There's not a huge list of them. There's about 16 of them. Yeah. They seem to cover most bases, but I think if you want to make something a bit more specific, a bit more special to your character, it seems that there's a wide range of effects, a wide range of things you can do with those existing ones that most things are on the table. You know, there's hmm. things that give you what, more damage, um, uh, higher AC. Uh, damage reduction, um, strikes, uh, out of turn, all that kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah. So, I th- yeah, I think the only thing to say with that is, if you are going to do that, I think you have to have the explicit understanding with the player that whatever you settle on is subject to change, because until yeah. you play with it for a while, you're not sure whether it's under or overpowered. Yeah. And, and you know, and at some point you may have to reevaluate it. But yeah, I, I, th- I think there's no reason why you can't do that. Cool. I mean, uh, I just, maybe I just don't even... think you can do it all the time. You know, just maybe because he now has the, the those battle master. You've actually physically got the cards for him, haven't you? Now, yeah, stuff on it. You could just literally just give him like two blank ones, like two blank playing cards or something. Then you go right here. You go mm. at some point fill these in, but you only get two of them. Yeah, absolutely. To to maybe answer Jack's point is you know the fight system itself. If it covers all the bases and gives you loads of technical choices, it will tend to limit you to those choices. But if you have a system which just says, okay, here's how you figure out damage, here's how you figure out if you hit or not, I think it seems to give you no tactical decisions to make, but it actually opens up the whole realm of possibility for you just to say, okay, let's do it like this, rather than have to spend 20 minutes looking stuff up in a book. Um, yeah, which is what you had to do for 3.5 if you wanted to figure out how to do all sorts of stuff with feats and everything. Let's go to the next one. Oliver Barker says, Some systems are more guilty than others, but I detest ones which reduce fights to we take turns hitting each other until one of us falls down. I think that's, that's a different point to what Jack was saying. That's, that's not tactical choice necessarily. That's, to me is them saying, well, all fights have to end in a bloodbath where everyone dies. Yeah. You, you get you get attacked by 20 gnolls or something, and you just hack into them, and you you as a party with, like, four people have just taken apart seven of their friends. Why are the last going to stay around? Yeah. And and I, I like the idea of combat doesn't have to end in death. We've, we've had some combats that haven't ended in, in one side wiping out the other, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, to a certain extent, that does fall down to the player as to whether they want to do uh, non-lethal damage. But of course, you, you know, you always give us that option. Mm. Do you know, I, I would almost let you have that in retrospect to say, yeah, they're down to zero hit points. But if you really want to interrogate one, yeah, there's one you didn't cleave in half. Here's what you know. But I think people and animals, which is is all monsters fall into, don't really want to fight because fighting is from an animal perspective, a very high risk proposition. So people are, so, uh, sorry, animals are much more likely to want to, uh, ambush and if it doesn't work, run. Mm. Um, so if you get ambushed by a wolf or something or a pack of wolves and you start putting up a fight, they're gonna fuck off. But it's where do they go? How do they run? You know, uh, how do you follow them? What does it bring to your story as well? Do you just want things to seem a bit more random to your party? Do you have a random table and here's a random encounter? Or 
do you want to make it seem like, okay, now you've got to fight for your life everywhere. So yeah, everyone's going to fight for the burger. I don't, you know, it's, it's a narrative decision. And I think if you're going to plan an encounter, you need to think as a, as a DM, what is this doing for the narrative? Is it going to be an interesting fight with lots of interesting terrain and all sorts of stuff like that? But if you're just throwing mooks at the party to give them XP and let them kill things, what are you bringing? Mm. I suppose there's there's some player decision here as well in that essentially people do have the habit, and I'm, I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anyone else, is you will engage with a, a particular person on the battlefield and you'll start hitting them. And they don't go down, so you just keep on hitting them. But there's no reason why you have to do that. There's no reason why you couldn't... I mean, okay, there's obviously there's, there's frequently a penalty for it of some kind. But there's no reason why you can't just stop and go, right, I'm going to back away from this guy and attack this guy instead or do something else. You know, hmm. you don't have to just continue hitting each other until you kill one another. But you do kind of find yourself doing that sometimes. Yeah. And there's always that uh, that moment of, can we talk to each other now? So, I mean, a, a lot of uh, combat in the real world, I mean, and I'm talking war fighting here, does end up with let's back someone into a corner or um, overpower them so much so that we don't have to kill them all. You know, you yeah. want to get into a position where you fired a lot of shots off, made a lot of noise, maybe roughed a few people up, and everyone else comes out nice and quiet-like because it reduces your chance of dying exponentially. Yeah, hugely. Yeah, if if no one wants to fight, then job done. So the the point of fighting isn't to reduce your um enemy's life to zero it's to reduce your enemy's fighting capacity to zero mm. you know as the gm be thinking to yourself well how far is this creature likely to go if it wants to fight to the burger what's the reason for that how committed are they you know do they want to live <laughs> is, is the question yeah and for something to not want to live is a huge huge deal yeah, either it needs to be completely unaware of its own existence, i.e., I don't know, ghouls or the undead, that kind of creature. Hmm. Or, yeah, the the actual it wanting to, to, to fight until it dies is actually probably more interesting than just killing it. You know, so that's, that's pretty rare. And that's actually yeah. why I put you up against a cult um, in, our, in our main 5e story, because that's the only situation I could see people wanting to throw their lives away um, mm. it, because you've got to believe you're going to something better or, you know, uh, the, the thing that you're dying for is, is worthwhile. I mean, if you talk about like people talk about a brutal medieval combat and so that, well, people didn't die on mass. People got taken prisoner or surrendered on mass or ran away. You know, it, it, you had to give people an out because if you fight into the last man, well, you're going to lose a lot of your men while you're slaughtering the enemy, even if it's a rout. So, mm. I mean, it's a little bit more work. You've got to think about it because you've got these monsters you're going to throw at your party, but then you need to come up with a way in which they're intelligent people and basically NPCs now um, so that you're thinking around things. But as an exercise, I think every DM out there for your next campaign, run a campaign where you only have uh, two encounters in the entire campaign that result in a wipe for, for either side. And that's it. So there is there is one big bad who will fight to the end, um, and maybe you know one other thing that's that's going to go wrong, and so uh, the players have to fight to the burger. You know, make it seem a little bit more realistic, and especially if you're doing like modern stuff, people really don't want to die um, in a modern settings. Make it so that every single encounter you have has an out and ends mm. where people don't die or where most of the combatants don't die. I think I think most. 
most pre-generated uh, campaigns kind of have this anyway. Like I can't remember what it was called. The um, was it the reddest box for the fifth edition that we played? Yeah, the uh, Lost Mine of Fandelva. That's the one. Who was it? Because I mean, who was it who tried to get away from us? Because I mean, I'm I'm sure I've played a couple of of pre-generated stuff. I mean, I played one recently at. Uh, uh, Oddcon, where we got to the end, and it was very embarrassingly, I let the bad guy go because I didn't realise he was going to run away. I thought he was going to fight to the death, and mm. as soon as we st- we got into it, he just buggered off, and I was like, "Oh, right, uh, sorry, guys." <laughs> you know, the the guys who do this professionally kind of understand this, and I yes, I, I suppose we, we well, should do it as well. In in Fandelva, um, I, I'm not sure I agree the, the, about the the professionals. Uh, is in Fandelva. It was pretty well established that it was fight to the death, and I varied it. Oh, okay. So, um, for example, uh, you interrogated the the main the, the bugbear in the in the goblin cave, um, mm. and, and maybe captured some other goblins here and there, and that was all off script. So you were supposed to. Uh, you could maybe have a conversation or interrogate the bugbear. He had, he had some information, and there was another goblin who had some information, but it didn't really work out the you know the way it happens in the in the pregen, which is standard. Um, so I thought, how can I give you people information? So the big one was uh, was it the, the goblin uh, you you sort of made a pet of? Yeah. Um, I wanted to cut out uh, a, a sort of side quest where you go and. Um, rescue a, a a town that's overrun by a dragon and some like living plant things and all sorts i thought that was all just a massive waste of time so let's get you moving so i gave the information you would have got out of that side quest to a goblin because all the information you get is the location where you're supposed to go next and that side quest would have taken weeks um I, yeah just to give it to this goblin and done it wasn't actually in the campaign at all you know, but elsewhere, like you, you break into a room, and there's this room has four bugbears in. All right, well, what? <laughs> you know, what? What do they do? Who are they? Um, how committed are they? Those are all decisions that you got to make as a GM. Otherwise, you just assume they're going to fight to the death because they're monsters. Mm. I, I, th- I think that's that's a weakness of a, a lot of pregens. But then, if you always come to it with the the sense of how do I make this mine? In those blank spaces, maybe that's where you can make it yours. Um, but if you've got that sense already, then maybe you don't want to be running pregens. Next, Next question, then. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Thomas Pitwood says um, uh, his uh, major gripe is. Oh, uh, I'll, I'll preface this. I know Tom pretty well. He's uh, a really big RPG uh, RPG geek, and he plays um, Legend of the Five Rings uh, quite a lot, um, and sort of LARP Legend of the Five Rings, and so sort of, he's, yeah, he's, he's really into it. Uh, he got to go to Gen Con this year, and I'm so jealous. People not knowing different kinds of melee weapon, and then moaning if you get the serial number of a gun wrong. <laughs> I'm precisely the opposite with swords. <laughs> I I can totally see where he's coming from here, uh, and I think I know the answer to this one. Um, melee weapons, generally, I mean, uh, a sword or a club or an axe, they're all kind of bespoke items they're all completely different and generally new, unique whereas guns on the other hand come off assembly lines basically yeah. they are exactly the same as the previous one i mean okay fair enough there's modifications here and there and different versions and stuff but they are essentially identical mm. so yeah you can essentially get a serial number wrong 
on a gun, but you can't really do it on a weapon, on a melee weapon, unless perhaps you're trying to do like a, a recreation of an existing weapon. Um, you'd like to think they'd get that right, but hmm. I think that's the main reason why this happens a lot. So yeah, that that's not that, the rate of fire for that thing, and that's not this, that, and the other. Yeah, yeah, that th- so those that, are that magazine isn't that size, and yeah, yeah. Well, my answer to that is okay. I I heft my great two-handed sword. Really, what is it? What kind of what is it? Is it you know what kind of sword are you are you holding? Is it an Albion Poitier? Is it a Black Prince? Is it a Type 12A? Is it, you know, so, um, to all the people who moan about, you know, the stats being wrong on firearms because they're verifiable and you could probably just look it up on the internet is the stats are wrong on every weapon. It's all verifiable. You can look it up on the internet. Stop being lazy. <laughs> you know, so if someone moans about, you know, oh, that's not the clip size is, do you know what? Fine. The bullets come from the same place as the incidental music, so fuck you. Um, or it's all right. I'm fine. Let's limit it that way. So, what is your your, your character's carrying? Is it is it brass knuckles? All right then. Okay. This is how that's difficult for you. Let's go. You know, how many of your knuckles are you breaking this time? You know, what's what's the sheer force on it? Um, who made them? What what material is it made out of? Does it fit your hand very well? Is your hand greasy right now? You know, what did you have to eat? Is it going to slip in your palm? All that sort of stuff. Like, yeah, bring it, bring it. <laughs> Okay, come away from the dark side. <laughs> come on. I can I can feel you slipping. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, it all comes back to... It's, it's a quote from um, the... It was a cinematographer for Lord of the Rings, or the, the, the lighting guy in Lord of the Rings. The guy playing Sam. Who's, who is it? Uh, uh, oh, I don't do actors' names. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> he, he, he asked the cinematographer uh, where the light was coming from in the scene because you look for the natural light sources and they're in a room which is supposedly no light sources and so where's the light coming from here and he's looked at him he said the same place as the music <laughs> yep fair enough fair enough um so anytime someone asks for you know uh, a huge amount of detail in one place and doesn't care about another just remind them where the music's coming from next one question by jack gasman damage being an overemphasized stat Getting hit is getting hit. It'll fuck you up. Also, the idea that your toughness value is a huge factor in surviving an arrow to the face. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if that's a question as much as a statement, but um, I get what you're saying. This is the difference between your realism and, um, and and being in a game where there's a scaling sense of difficulty or a sense of progression. Uh, you know, an arrow in the face is going to do you. It doesn't matter who you are, an arrow in the face will do it for you. In in the real world, though, it's a lot more random than that. A hell of a lot more random. We played uh, Blue Planet. And if you go back and listen to our Blue Planet discussion episode uh, we did with Alex, we do talk about the, the combat system, and it was very, very random. Very complicated, but producing um, quite severe effects randomly. And the idea was to simulate the whole kind of, well, if someone just punches you in the head, you might have an embolism ready to go. Or an aneurysm, sorry. You might have an aneurysm ready to go. So if someone punches you in the head, that's you done. Or if if someone um, uh, hits you with a sword, let's say, it might be that they give a, a really good whack, but the edges aren't quite in line with each other, so it doesn't cut shit. It just sort of gives you a, a bit of a sting um, when they thought they were going to take your arm off. So... That randomness, I think, doesn't really have a place in RPGs because it instantly makes it unfair, which combat generally is in real yeah. life. 
Um, and that's why you spend so much time trying to stack the odds, uh, you know, by training, by having equipment, by having armor, that sort of stuff. I, mean, I really appreciate his point. You know, if you get hit, that's it. You're done, or you might not. But I think maybe the only thing that could carry over from that is, well, if you take X amount of damage, how does that translate to an effect? You know, what if you get hit in the hand, for example? Um, in D&D, you just lose some hit points mechanically. What effect does it have on you? Do you, do you stop, you know, being able to use that arm for a while? Do you limp for a while? Do you, um, have to play with a bit of pain on your face for, you know, the rest of the session? I am totally in favour of consequences to loss of hit points, um, as was demonstrated by uh, Lord Robert losing his two fingers. Mm. I, I absolutely love that. So, some people would absolutely hate that, oh god, I've got to play my character with two less fingers from now on. I absolutely loved that. And thinking, when I come back to this character, I'm going to have to figure out how to work that into it. I, I, in fact, that's one of the things I, I wish there was more of. Uh, permanent consequences to injuries because it just doesn't happen yeah you lose your hit points get healed up done you just carry on as if nothing happened well you don't have that in in D, &D although you could house rule it to say you know if you lose 25 percent of your hit points uh you're going to pick up a scar 50 percent you're going to you know have an effect um that's going to mm. last for a while you know an injury uh, that you can heal from you know etc but in fate there is that system specifically put in so you have consequences you have um Mild consequences, uh, you have stress, that's kind of your, your base damage. And then if you can't soak up that stress in some way, you have to put it into a consequence. And that gives you an aspect which is tagged onto your character, and, uh, the GM can invoke that aspect to, um, nobble you another way. So, okay, um, so you've been in combat, the guys hit you in the head, uh, you've got a helmet, it's taken up this much stress, but you've still got loads of stress. Uh, let's say you've got, um, uh, you kind of have a, a a moderate consequence, which is a, a mild concussion, let's say. And that stays with your character for a certain amount of time based on what it is. I think a mild is to the end of the scene, a moderate is to the end of the next scene, um, a severe, um, I think, is to the end of the session or to the end of that um, maybe story arc. And then mm. you have an extreme, which is it becomes a new aspect of your character. It goes onto your character sheet permanently. Yeah, I think if if, if I was doing this as a mechanic, the way in which I'd actually keep track of it for people is I'd just give out a sheet of like A4 paper, like photocopied A4 paper with a reasonably anatomically correct, you know, outline of a human being or whatever creature they were doing. And as the game went on and yeah, you, you know, you hit these like minor permanent injuries or extreme permanent injuries, you'd have to mark it up on the sheet and it would be essentially the same as your character sheet. Hmm but it would be for your physical damage and you'd be able to keep track of it that way. And then, you know, things could get crossed off or added on as, as, and when they got healed or, or whatever. I've seen variants of the five E character sheet with a figure on it, with an anatomical figure on it. Mm. And there's nothing to stop people using that. Um, but I would say that as a GM, it kind of makes life a little bit more difficult to remember that because you know, full well, the players aren't going to, um, and, but, you know, it, it's it's hard enough get the players to to remember the rules of the game rather than <laughs> and, and to remember. Oh yes, I did pick up that fifty foot rope. Is it on your character sheet? Nope. Right, you don't have it. Um, I think we we had one just the other day, uh, which is Karahad's armor. He's got chain armor. We made a big deal of him getting some chain armor when you all went out and got tooled up. All yeah. of you forgot everything that you got in that tooling up session. Like it was a big deal. You were being outfitted by a municipal authority to go on your adventure. And all of you forgot what you had. 
<laughs> None of you wrote it down in your character sheet. So I was like, okay, well, you lost it somewhere, you know, but that's just too mean. So he had written down he had plate armor. What? <laughs> like, no, <Yeah>. no. <laughs> so, um, toughness and things like that, uh, it's all sort of abstracted. And I think maybe it goes into a combat descriptions as people not being able to think what happens when someone gets hit with a weapon and it doesn't kill them, you know? Um, mm. So most real combat would be someone gets hit once, they go the fuck down. They might get that last gasp out, you know, the the, the dead man's finger. Um, in, in HEMA, we call it the afterblow, where you get one attempt to hit someone back after they've hit you. But I think it comes to, it comes down to flavor, really. If you get hit till you've got zero hit points and then you come back to life and stand up, you know, after someone rolls a medicine check, but to turn a key on you, it's an abstract. It's not someone just removed your head. Oh, it's all better. Here's a cold compress. <laughs> or, it, or it might be, you know, it's, it's magic sponge. If anyone's seen, um, for the, for our American friends, soccer, uh, for everyone else in the world, football, someone goes down screaming, holding their knee, and then a physiotherapist runs onto the pitch and dabs a sponge on them and then they're fine, <laughs> you know, um, then maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's 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 all psychological. I, I know for a, for a fact that if I get hit really hard, I get shaken by it. You know, my my reaction time goes down, and what that is 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 a function of me being more reticent to move. Um, it's my brain just clamps down and says no 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 no. no. Uh, let's 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 think about this, shall we? But when you're in the moment, you just feel like you're slower because you got hit. Mm. Okay, let's move on. So the next. Two, we can kind of roll into one. It's again Jack Gasman uh, talking about armor and Matt Easton. If you go uh, look up Matt Easton, if he's got a YouTube uh, page which is really popular now. Matt Easton runs Scholar Gladiatoria, which is the same school that I teach in, um, and he's got a YouTube page. Uh, so he's got a YouTube channel out there, Scholar Gladiatoria. Go look for him. Um, he does a lot of really interesting videos covering arms, armor, antique weapons, and uh, how to fight in combat, and sort of breakdowns of things from films and TV and games and things. And their point that they're sort of making jointly is that armor is a sponge for damage, um, and that you've got this sort of hit point slash energy bar thing that negates the effect of stamina. So maybe your hit points relates to your stamina and how much you can fight. Yeah, I've always considered hit points not to be specifically, this is how many times I can get hit. I, I've always, yeah, just considered it as a metaphor for your well-being in general, whether it be mental, physical, stamina, everything. It's just kind of a generalized pool. It doesn't necessarily just represent, this is how many times I can get hit with a brick in the head before <laughs> I go down. Yeah, it's it's not a measure of how much blood you have left in your body. Yeah. And armor is a sponge for damage. I think that's an easy one to get out of the way. Uh, armor as its AC, I think, is that is that abstract. It's um, if you have armor that uh, has an AC of 19, so you've got plate armor, so you've got AC of 19, it might be that you're actually getting hit all the time. It just doesn't do any damage to you because you're a bit slower, you're a bit, you know, you're a larger target, and you're expecting the armor to soak it up anyway. So um, someone rolling a, a, a 12 against you, for example, um, to try and hit you with a sword, hits you with a sword. It just doesn't bother you. It kind of depends a bit on the mythology of the world you're living in as well. Because, I mean, if if you look at the Star Wars universe, okay, I appreciate this information is now based on the extended universe, which is no longer considered canon. And anyone listening, don't worry, nothing will be said <laughs> about The Force Awakens. Um, I'm going to spoil it so hard. Yeah. <laughs> the, the thing that happens with Stormtroopers is... Um, 
that their armor, everyone goes, well, why do they wear armor? They get shot once and then they go down. You know, it's pointless. They might as well just run around with nothing on and save the time and effort. That isn't actually the case. The way in which it works within the mythology is that the armor disperses the energy bolt across the entire body. So when you see a stormtrooper go down, it's generally that actually they've passed out and they're waiting to be kind of like revived and, and brought up because the armor's done its job. Because you don't generally see a big exit wound because Disney. Correct. Yeah. In that sense, armor is exactly what it is. It's it's a damage sponge. It just, you know, takes the hit of what it is. Mm. And there's no reason why you couldn't magically imbue armor to say that the reason why when I got clocked with this ginormous hammer in the chest, it didn't kill me is because my magical armor disperses it across my entire body. And that's why I, I you know, I went out because, yeah. you know, it, 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 it's less everywhere the same kind of energy mm. i think um another point that people don't necessarily get with this is that when you're fighting someone in armor i think we might have covered this a little bit previously but if if not is you don't aim for the armor you aim for where the armor isn't so you're looking at getting in under the armpits into the crotch into um the back of the legs you know the the joint of the neck maybe depending on where the armor is not and so i think maybe matt and jack's point about that is okay fine if I hit you, the damage shouldn't reduce, um, shouldn't get reduced because if I've hit you, I have bypassed your armor. Yeah. And that kind of does work for, um, like a, a quasi medieval setting. But in places where, uh, you've got, let's say, um, a ballistic vest, if you get shot with a ballistic vest, you fucking know about it. So you're going to get some damage, but you're not going to get a bullet through you, for example, you know, should, should the vest work, you know, it's going to break ribs. It's going to cause damage, just not as much. And so that, I think there are systems that, that compensate for that. Um, I believe world of darkness turns it from lethal into bashing or, or something like that. D and D I think is probably the wrong place for it. It may be if someone's wearing leather armor, for example, hitting someone with a great big hammer and leather armor is probably going to do a lot of damage because it's fairly flexible and it won't disperse that, that hit but then you get into that system of saying okay i've hit you now i roll damage no 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 no. i've hit you now i roll damage but now we add this modifier to it and now we take this away and now we take that and then do this and then you've got 3.5 again and i and I think to keep things simple just say is it does it hit or not um in which case does it have have, have a damaging effect it can actually make contact and not have any damage and that could be how you flavor you know a miss but um, be free to kind of think to yourself, actually, uh, in this one situation, because fighting is chaos, right now I'll say you hit him really good with a hammer and he's wearing cloth armor, so he's going to go down like a sack of bricks. Um, whereas uh, you hit him with this sword of yours, well, you've never told me that you've sharpened that, and I kind of want this NPC to live so we can give you some information. So yeah, you reduce him to zero hit points, but you do so with blunt force. You you, you can actually cut through his, his cloth. Mm. Which, by the way, cloth is really hard to cut through. <laughs> um, if you have a katana or, something, or a saber or something, uh, it, it's easier. If you have a long sword, you're never going to cut through cloth. It's really, really, really hard to do. So you've got things to play with in that. Um, just be aware that, you know, tell your players you're not establishing precedent. You're just making sense for the story, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Is that a coherent thought? I don't know. It's certainly a thought. <laughs> Thank you. Next one. Okay, uh, Joe Tier. Is that Tier? Trier. Trier. 
Joe Trier. That's Joe from asks, How We Roll, by the way. Oh, hello, Joe. Um, asks, are there any phrases like fire a bow, in inverted commas, which I should stop using? Fire a bow. Uh, well, let's let's cover that specifically. Yeah, it's it's loose a bow, isn't it? Yeah, it's it? loose. It's, think about the action that you take with it. You don't. You say fire for a firearm because you bring fire to the charge. Okay, you have a, a lit match type thing or like a, a piece of rope, and you move that towards the priming charge, and that sets off the main charge, and your musket ball flies out. Then later it's a it's a flint, and then later it's a percussion cap. But that's where that comes from. You bring fire to it, um, and the, the the initial certainly in English the the initial command was bring fire. It wasn't just fire uh, for for cannoneers and things like that. But it's fine. Do you know what? It, it's fine. It is fine. It's something we all understand. It's all something that we get. It's, it doesn't break up the narrative. Um, unless there's someone at your table who is uh, a hopology nerd, it's not going to break it. Yeah, and same again. I mean, even if you do switch it around and you were to say, uh, I loose my AK-47 at them, they'd just think you were adding a poetic license to the phrase. Yeah. So, you know, ultimately, it's do people understand what you are saying? Yeah. And there's other things like that, like chainmail, for example. I don't, I don't mind. It, it was never called chainmail in, in, in back in the day. Uh, it was called mail, or it was called chain, or it was called chain harness, or it was a halberk, or um, something else. But it was never called chainmail. And that's been extended to plate mail. That irritates me. But do you know what? Fine. There was never such a thing as plate mail. Um, I think it was the idea that they're saying, oh, chainmail, it must be, mail must mean armour. And so this is a type of armour of chain, so chainmail. So plate mail, okay, fine. That that was that came from D and D, but um, no, plate mail was never called plate mail. It was called plate. It was called harness. It was called white armor, um, but it was never called plate mail. The one thing in this sort of genre of of, or the one thing that is covered by this idea, I think, that does bear thinking about is studded leather armor. And Joe, you've used this. Studded leather armor is not leather armor with studs on it it is leather armor or a piece of soft leather that's not armor itself that has rivets in it and those rivets attach plates to the inside of it those plates might be steel they might be leather um or you know some other form of of material you know adamantine or whatever you want to do um into what's called a brigandine or coat of plates um i did actually ask mike mills from wizards of the coast about this and he said yeah i always envisioned it as being some sort of brigandine. So it is not a leather jacket with studs on it like bikers have. The only thing that that would do is injure you more because a weapon would catch on those studs and thus transfer more of their energy to you. Yeah, studded leather armour needs to needs to go the fuck away. Uh, <laughs> and, and in D&D, in canon, from you know the horse's mouth itself, the mighty Mike Merles, um, studded leather armour in D&D is brigandine. Broadsword, longsword, bastard sword. Do you want to do that one? Um, I think we covered that really quite well in 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 the previous one we did of this. Why the hell armor? Again, we covered that in the whole Lord of the Rings thing as well. Yeah. So uh, just to, to read out the questions, just because people have contributed. So, um, but we have yeah, we have yeah. covered this in in previous episodes. Uh, the broadsword. So this Oliver Barker. Um, sorry, uh, Martin Oswick Oz who is a brawler par excellence. He does a lot of uh, English martial arts. Uh, we do have them, uh, which involve more than just hitting someone with your keys. 
he, he, he came up with it. He just put two words, plate mail. So fair enough. Uh, Oz, I think we covered that. Oliver Barker said, um, the broadsword, longsword, bastard sword type thing has been widely covered elsewhere, uh, but could always use some reiteration. Um, and that being people don't know what they are. Um, nomenclature and the, the naming of things is, is hard historically. Uh, people, it depended on who you were, where you were, you know, what language you were speaking. So it, it's really difficult to say this is a longsword, this is a broadsword, this is a bastard sword kind of thing. It's that those are all modern distinctions. And, D and D nowadays actually gets it fairly right. Um, it's very slowly corrected some of its its issues. So now, for example, in three point five, uh, they showed a cutlass and called it a rapier. I was not pleased with that. <laughs> uh, so Colin Fieldhouse, hello Colin. Uh, Colin's another fellow instructor from um, Scholar Gladiatoria. Why the hell is armor not effective against weapons? Lord of the Rings, hang your head in shame. And why in Warhammer do two-handed weapons have a speed penalty despite having greater range uh, and able to, to contact an opponent sooner? Uh, Newton Bomer then came in and said, yes, yes, this. Um, I would say, yeah, armor is effective against weapons, but armor has a high AC. It doesn't mean that you physically miss your target. It means you fail to damage them. So uh, let's do that. Um, and I always, always go back to that scene where, um, it's a really, really cool scene where Aragorn comes striding out of the, um, that ruin on top of the hill where Frodo's just run away from, um, is it Lord, of, uh, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring? Frodo's just left. Aragorn comes out. There's all these orcs coming up the hill and he just like gives a, a little salute, like a little blessing of the sword kind of thing and then goes to town on these orcs. And the first thing he did, he does is hit someone in the helmet. The second thing he does is hit someone in, the uh the, in the chest plate in the breastplate he didn't kill either of those two in fact he probably just pissed them off and yet they go down and die why 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 would you do this um it just makes everything look like Wasn't it's it obvious reasons <laughs> reasons they, they just became suddenly emo and decided they wanted to lie down and think about things yeah so uh two-handed weapons having a speed penalty despite possibly being quicker yeah, um, a spear is a two-handed weapon. It's fucking quick. In a, in a straight-up fight, I would give... Uh, we probably said this before. If there was a spearman versus um, swordsman, I would give it to the spearman unless he was facing four swordsmen. As as a man who has gone up against three opponents with a spear and come out victorious, I would agree with that. Mm. They are awesome. Yeah, and halberds and things like that. And the idea is that... Um, and here's the thing, actually, for your, for your, um, for the flavor, uh, and again, it's taking some realism and adding it to RPGs and saying, this makes it better. It gives you more options. It gives you more flavor. It doesn't limit you by having to know how, how everything works. Just take a little bit and flavor things and it gives you more options. Um, if you're using uh, a halberd, um, which essentially is an axe blade uh, and a spear point on top of the stick, like seven foot long, maybe. Or if you're using um, a quarterstaff, you don't generally use it with your hands kind of in the middle. Um, so maybe like one third from the end and, and then another third from the end. So imagine uh, that you're dividing it into three equal parts with your hands. You don't generally use it like that. You generally use pole weapons to keep the dangerous psychopath a long way away from you. So you, yep. you hold it in the last quarter and point the point towards them because it makes them back away to that 
distance. And once you do that, it actually becomes a really, really quick thing. You're not going to whirl it around your head and try and smash someone with it. You're going to jerk it around really quick and poke them with it and, you know, use short chopping actions and things like that to, to move around. Yeah, you use uh, you, your most extended hand keeps reasonably straight, and then your backhand at the back uh, at the at the bottom of it just kind of you know does the most of the movement. Hmm. And yeah, you can people with swords, you can just completely you just swirl it around as if you're like trying to like blend a milkshake or something, hmm. and they don't know how to respond to it because they can't they can't block it in any kind of like feasible way. And you just do that whilst moving in, and hmm. voila, you stab them. I think great. Th- there is a there is a massive hole in um in D&D and in combat systems generally where you've got someone with a, a weapon with reach it gives mm. them the advantage that they can hit people further away but i've never seen a mechanic whereby you can hold someone at bay cuz if i've got you know a, a mace or something and someone else has got a spear i have got to do a lot of work to get past that spear and mm. once i do i'm i'm in luck you know i'm probably going to do some damage but i've i'm 10 feet away that's a good point actually yeah do you with the current mechanics do you, if you're using like a long spear do you actually have to move to within five foot as you would do if you were using swords or axes or anything else if you've got a long spear with reach you don't have to move in but your opponent does yeah but there's nothing stopping them so you attack them 10 feet away on, and then they move next and they just move next to you and hit you Mm. Um, I would say that there's room there for a homebrewed feat, or maybe if you know, Wizards of the Coast aren't insane, they would come up with a feat in a later splat book um, to say, or a fighting style to say, if you're a spear fighter, um, then you've learned how to keep someone at bay really well. So the, you know, the fighter gets that as their fighting style, and then other characters can take it as a feat when an opponent wants to move within, you know, um, five feet of you, uh, or, or with an opponent with whom you are already engaged wants to move. Uh, from ten feet to five feet, then they've got to make a check of some kind, uh, or you yeah, get a, you, you get a, an attack of opportunity. I was about to say exactly that would seem the the logical step because they're essentially yeah changing combat position. Yeah, and and really that you getting a, an opportunity attack automatically is a bit op, uh, but actually that makes sense that they're moving out of a threatened square. So yeah, maybe. Um, but yeah, I, I think. I think that little feat actually would work really well. Just they they had to, they have to make um, a, a check or maybe an imposed check or something versus your a static stat of yours, you know, like a, your your passive perception type thing. Um, let's say yeah, so so you've got someone you're engaged with, you're fighting them at ten feet with a spear or a reach weapon, um, and they want to move in, and it's got to be a rigid reach weapon, not a whip or a chain or anything like that, because that doesn't make sense. They've got to make a check to get within five feet of you based on uh, your uh, your passive perception score plus your proficiency bonus, yeah. let's say. Uh, otherwise, you get an attack of opportunity. So it's a, it's a standard DC. That that seems all right. Let's, let's play test that. Hmm. Rue, yes. Rue's going to get a spear. Um, <laughs> well, he, he fucking needs one, because let's face it, there's no other handheld weapon that he's used so far that has done anything other than paper-cut people. <laughs> Keep us on track here. Let's, let's do the next one. So this is Mike Pusateri, I'd probably pronounce that wrong, from the Knights of the Night podcast. He's a fellow martial artist um, via the sort of oriental route. I think he does uh, Iaido, Kendo, that sort of thing. And he's asking, in a desperation move, is it possible to use a sword as a thrown weapon, a la Black Knight dispatching his last foe in Monty Python's Holy Grail? 
Uh, also, have you ever heard of long maces, like a long sword, but a heavy bar that you can bludgeon others uh, and ruin their weapons? Feasible or too cumbersome? So, two questions there. Thanks, Mike. So the first, first one, one, yeah. Can you throw your weapon like the Black Knight in Holy Grail? Short answer? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think I think with his amazing level of accuracy to get it through the visor... Um, that was a bit much. <laughs> it, it is a bit, yeah is a bit of a tall order, but I think actually the in the interesting thing in it, the, is the fact that the question asks, in a desperation move, n- no, doesn't have to be a desperation move, mm. doesn't have to be a, a, a move of last resort. Hell, do, do it as your opening opening gambit. Mm. And uh, just as a, a, an insert there, I know the guy who did the fight work for the Black Knight, um, and he actually uh, was doing research into European martial arts at the time, um, it was in its infancy, and that technique of throwing um, you'll see that he actually uh, he launches it from about hip height with the quillins held in a certain way and he throws it. And that is actually because that technique is in Fiore's, sixth, uh, in Fiore's 15th century longsword manuscript. Is it now? Yeah. Um, to throw one's weapon. He actually has uh, a stance to throw and he has um, a position from which you would stand if someone was throwing their weapons at you. Um, so it makes it easier to, to sort of sweep things aside. And it was something that was done a lot, but it's very situation specific and it's, it's not necessarily desperation. If I was using it in single combat where we just had a long sword and nothing else, or, you know, one weapon versus one weapon, then I would throw it and rather than seeing what happened, I would expect them to be able to bat it away. I, I would expect them to, um, to be able to knock it aside or avoid it because it's a big thing, it's moving fairly slowly and all you've really got on your side is surprise. But you only need it to work once. So if it hits them, fair enough. But if it doesn't, you're left without a weapon and they can just hit you freely. But what you do is you throw it and you're almost chasing the wake, you know, that the pommel should be like an inch away from your nose, you know, as you sprint after this thing. So that as they bat the sword away, you're right behind it, smack them in the face, take their weapon off them, and then stab them, or you know, grapple them and break them in, in interesting ways. Yeah, it's 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 a lose lose for them because they can either leave their sword in a position in which you essentially run onto it on your charge, but that means that they then get smacked by the flying sword, or mm. they bat it to one side and then you jump in afterwards. Yeah. So it's they're damned if they do, damned if they don't. And the flying sword could it could penetrate them but it could also just as easily not uh, and just do blunt force trauma or inflict a wound which is going to uh, reduce their fighting capacity you know it might hit them in a pectoral muscle rather than going into their heart but it means they can have a pretty hard time moving that arm now so it's, mm. it's give, it gives you an advantage to go in and i think in uh, rpgs you could easily easily come up with a way of flavoring that and just say i want to do this here's this check um and then go in for a grapple uh, or go in and smack the fucker, or go in and take his weapon off him, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I, I would give, I would give that all day. You know, if if we had to, if we, if it took us like twenty minutes to resolve that, it'd be worth it. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you can definitely do it, and it's context dependent. All all combat is context dependent. Um, it's not a case of what happens when this goes on. It's okay, where is it? Who's fighting? What time of year is it? What time of day is it? You know, uh, what social um, considerations are there? You know, what kind of background do these people have? Have they eaten? It's all so context dependent. But in the specific context of European combat, there was a style of um, judicial combat where, uh, so trial by combat, essentially, 
where you would start in full armor. It's illustrated in one of the, I think it's the Vienna Gladiatoria manuscript. Um, you'd start in full armor and you'd have a poleaxe, you'd have a spear, you'd have a longsword and a dagger. Your first move, throw the spear. Your second move, throw the poleaxe. Your third move, throw the longsword. And as he's batting away all these things, he's sort of being driven back to, to the edge of the, the area where the barriers are. Because these were all um, conducted within um, lists or barriers or big uh, wooden uh, fences, essentially. So he'd be driven back. So he's, he's got no out anymore. He can't run away from you. And you've chased these things through the air. And you're landing straight after they do with your dagger drawn. Um, and he is in completely the wrong position. And you've just got a free hit to get him through the eyes or something. Or, or take him to the ground. Um, so yeah, it, it was absolutely said. And sometimes you throw lots and lots and lots of things. You know, if you've got it and you don't need it to to beat this guy, uh, you can do it in some other way. Yeah, throw it at him. Fine, absolutely. Um, many of the martial arts of Europe contained dirty fighting tactics, like uh, cloak and rapier. Um, is you know, throw your cloak on someone um, rather than use it as a kind of shield or way to sort of bat away your opponent's sword. Is just throw it at him. Weigh down their weapon and stab them in the face, or throw it into their face and stab them through the cloak, or use it to whip up dirt into their eyes. Uh, my personal favourite is is you carrying a lantern, you, um, which is a, a city ordinance. You have to carry a lantern at night. Um, so you've got your rapier. So if you're accosted, your first move is to put your hand on your rapier, whirl the lantern around, break the lantern on your opponent, cover him with burning oil, and then casually draw your rapier and put him out of his misery. So so yeah, it's if you can imagine doing it with a sword is probably worthwhile doing dependent on the context yeah i think his second part of the question about the long mace specifically for you know well you know screwing up other weapons that's quite an interesting idea um yeah um i i happen to know that there's a sort of wider question here but i happen to know that the the long mace itself did exist um, it is essentially a sword hilt, um, or maybe something with a, with a sort of hook on the end, because this thing can get away from you pretty quickly. But it doesn't have a cross. It doesn't have a cross guard. It just goes up. And it is uh, two flat pieces of metal, essentially, uh, kind of welded together um, into a cross shape. So if you look at it in cross section, it is an X shape. Um, and they're heavy as hell. And yeah, they, they would ruin other people's swords, but you wouldn't have much of a chance of hitting another sword unless you caught someone unaware because their weapon is so much more quick. And the only versions of these weapons I've seen have been single-handed. But um, the idea of the, the cross section of it is to um, be able to bite into armor a little bit better. It, it's um, it, it's going to hit and twist very quickly to sort of uh, bring two of the, uh, the arms of that X into play, and it's going to stop on the armor and thus transfer all of its uh, energy to the armor or to the person. Um, but yeah, they do exist. Uh, they, they existed in more in artwork than they did in real life. I believe there's only one existing, um, example as, uh, in a museum. So they were pretty rare, but yeah, they did exist, but we don't know exactly how they were used. No one wrote that down, but this touches on something else is the sword breaker. And it, uh, you'd have seen them, uh, like a, a dagger, for example, with notches cut in it. Uh, and the idea is that a sword would go into it and you sort of split the sword in half with it. No. <laughs> Uh, ruining other people's weapons is not a tactic you want to employ in actual combat because you want to fight the man, not the weapon. If you can disarm him, that's fine, but you disarm him by chopping his bloody hand off, you know, or hit him in the face so hard he can't see anymore. 
So breaking someone's weapon means that they are free to attack you again just with something else. And what if you split someone's spear in half? Well, spears were usually made of ash. And if you break ash, I, 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 I know for a fact, um, it splits and leaves a sharp point. More often than not. That's the bane of my life as a carpenter. You, you don't disarm him. You leave him, you've taken him from a, a long pointy stick to a short pointy stick. Mm. But the idea of, um, this sword breaker idea or this sort of weapon ruiner, um, comes from a mistranslation of, of how they meant the word break. Um, it's, uh, the translation, I suppose, is okay, a sword breaker. But in the medieval period, they used the term break to mean to render useless, not necessarily to render sunder. If that makes sense. Um, so yeah. you would break <clears throat> someone's guard, for example, um, by doing something which meant they had to move. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily rip their guard apart. You wouldn't sort of take their sword and move it. You would just hit them somewhere they weren't guarding. So you would break that guard. They'd have to do something else. Um, so that's, that's where that comes from. And the sword breaker itself is, is more of a sword catcher. Um, it, it, so it's there to, um, to take the sword and you just twist your, your wrist a little bit and it, uh, puts friction on the blade and stops them being able to draw the blade back and, and means you can grab it, uh, more safely than, than using your hand to do so. Um, and it means, it means you just rendered it useless in their hand. So it doesn't mean that they, that you break their sword. So I think that's where a lot of those ideas come from. Uh, so we're running short of time. So apologies if we sort of breeze through these things. Uh, Billy's having technical problems. I'll read these one out, these ones out. Uh, Iban Ruiz, uh, says, why wear plate armor when a significant portion of the population can cook you inside it from 50 paces away? Because, uh, the other proportion of the, the population can't cook yes. you from 50. <laughs> Precisely. Uh, plate <laughs> yeah. armor was still used in the age of, um, firearms. Look at the English Civil War. We were using muskets on, and stuff like that. People still wore big breastplates. I mean, fair enough. They were doing a slightly different job. Um, and they were often much heavier. Um, but to, to be proof against firearms. But yeah, I, th- I don't think any of the D&D settings I've ever come up with, yeah, everyone's got magic, everyone's throwing fireballs around. Um, it's more a case that 99% of the people you're going to uh, find aren't going to be able to get through plate armour. And 10%, sorry, well, yeah, 2% of the population could cook you. Yeah, fine, but what are the chances? And it, yeah, it, it's a good point. And spells kind of do bypass armour quite a lot. You know, you roll saving throw rather than uh, it going against your AC. So, yeah. Uh, but then again, if half the population can use magic to cook you inside your armor, why ca- why can't you know some of those people be paid to protect that armor against getting cooked? Yeah, yeah. So you know, you've got magic, you've got magic armor. Fuck it. You know, maybe if you've got a high magic setting, then you'd have to think about. Uh, the stats for armor and say, well, it's not armor, um, that's just mundane. Or if, if literally 50% of the, the population, uh, can throw fireballs around, it's that arms race. As soon as someone invents a weapon, someone's going to invent some way of protecting against that weapon. And for the vast majority of history, armor has outdone weaponry. Mm. So, you know, if you've got a lot of people who are willing to throw a fireball, you've probably got a lot of people who are willing to make enchanted armor. So that, that, you know, that, that's a game world balance sort of issue. But it is, is definitely worth thinking about is, you know, um, you know, we've got this situation. What has magic done to the world? What's magic done in terms of the society and sort of that? And think about how innovation would have worked. So, so you know, it's a very important, 
aspect of, of moving things along. Okay, Kurt asks, why can't whips and chain weapons get more love and damage in roleplay games? And follows up with low damage. Um... That's the thing that I think that, that low damage is, is my thing. It, it's a good ah. point. Um, uh, and so I, I didn't know what exactly what he's talking about until I asked for some clarification. He's not talking about flail weapons where you have a, a haft and then a short chain and then a, a ball or something. Um, he is talking about things like the, uh, I'm going to get these names wrong. Um, Kusarigama, uh, which is a, it looks like a, a wheat sickle. Um, or a mm. rice sickle on the end of a chain, um, or, you know, uh, Manriki Gusari, uh, which is a weight on the end of a chain and variations and things like that, and, you know, hooks and all sorts. So monk and ninja weapons, essentially, with chains involved. Uh, he said that's a nice, uh, image, so we've got some reference, so thanks, Kurt. Have you got any thoughts on this one? I don't know. I've never actually used any of these in a game. So I'm, I've never put my brain to thinking about how you could use them. I mean, they'd be a great kind of trying to get someone's shield off them. I mean, yeah. kind of, some of these look very much like you could use them fantastically as a grappling hook to, you know, hook over someone's shield and yank it out of their arm. I suppose it'd give you quite a bit of range to actually fight from as well, but I'm not even entirely sure how I can imagine you, you would use some of this. Mm. I think that, I, I made some notes on this because you, you, you've just hit on, on what I, I was thinking about that, mm-hmm. um, is that these weapons are uh, very much task orientated or they are improvised weapons that uh you know you could maybe hide a chain for example about your body but this uh scythe thing this this uh sickle uh, you could carry because it's a, a peasant's tool for example mm. so you're sacrificing utility for stealth or you're sacrificing the the general purpose uh, use of, say, a longsword, um, you know, so, so it's, it's designed to hurt someone in a lot of different ways. But let's say you've got this, this hooked weapon. Uh, one of them, for example, is, is a, is a three-pronged grappling hook on the end of a chain here. Um, that's designed for a very, very specific action. And so it's not designed for dealing damage in as many ways as possible. So, uh, it's going to be difficult to get that damage working. And let's take the uh, Kusarigama for an example, which is the sickle on the end of a chain. Well, you throw that, it's going to fly blunt end towards your opponent, so it's blunt force. So that's going to have, and it's thrown blunt force as well, it's not going to have much damage. But if you manage to hook them with it, Mm. then that's going to do an awful lot of stuff. So um, you're, you're going to sacrifice the damage that you could cause for the effect that you can have, which is you can drag someone back, you can immobilize them, you can take them off a horse, for example. If you're using this grappling hook thing, um, that force is spread about over these three prongs that it has, so you're not hitting with a small area, you're not hitting with an edge, you're not hitting with a like a warhammer striking point, you're hitting with a rather large amount of surface area, so that force is going to be spread, and that's why it has low damage. And I was thinking that maybe what you could do to balance that is say, well, it's got low damage, but if you do hit, you get to roll again and say, uh, maybe just make a luck roll, for example, has has the weapon edge sort of bit into them? So can you have this other effect of being able to drag someone out of a, a, a horse's saddle or bring them to the ground or something? Yeah, rip off a piece of the plate armor, something like that, yeah. yeah. And 
where you see these things being used, I mean, my only uh, analogy is, is demonstrations and, um, you know, martial arts films, is that you see uh, things like uh, a weight on the end of a chain, for example, or rope or wherever it's going to be, um, used as sort of startling choreography. But when you actually look at it, what about that choreography is truly keeping their opponent at bay? Mm. And not a lot of it is. If someone's waving around a chain, for me, with um, a one-pound weight on the end, which has uh, you know a size of maybe three inches long, um, three to four inches long, I'm not going to fear that at all. Not at all. Because when the chain hits me, I mean, all I have to do is get past that three inches, uh, yeah. which is whirling around and moving around and is hardly ever pointed towards me. Uh, if the chain hits me, it's going to wrap around and the force is instantly going to dissipate. Um, so that as the end of it comes around and hits me, yeah, that might hurt me. It's not going to cause a lot of damage. And this comes from experience of having used some of these weapons, uh, in a way. I mean, I, I did a lot of work with a nunchaku, for example. It's easy to twat yourself than Nunchaku. Really hard to injure yourself. Really hard. Or, or injure someone else. Because anything they do with it is going to dissipate the force of it. So yeah, I, I'd say that's, that's pretty well earned. But I think the payoff of wanting to use something like that is that you would get extra effects. You can tie someone up. You can immobilize. All that sort of stuff. But you ain't yeah. going to do it with the, the shitty ass pointy end. You're going to do it with a chain once you've made contact. Um, so, be happy that you have versatility, but you're not going to have great damage. And it's that to me makes a mockery of the whole thing. I mean, if you if you can sort of whirl a, a chain around with a bit of a weight on the end, and it has as much damage as a, a specifically designed warhammer or a sword, or something. It, yeah, I get that. I can't tie someone up with a sword. That's fine. You know what I mean? So <laughs> y- you can have that. I'll have this. You know, I'll have my D8. You can have your D4, but you can do so. You can do other things. Sabrina. Uh, how does one incorporate firearms into a D&D setting without feeling OP or pointless? That, to me, is a huge, huge question. And uh, we'll cover it a little bit. And maybe we'll do another episode on just that, because that could be massive. Mm. But things outside of D&D are good examples of how to deal with it. Call of Cthulhu, for example, deals with firearms really well. I think they're brilliant. You look at the amount of damage... I think maybe it's 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 the modern analogy. It's we understand um, a gunshot does a lot of damage, except do uh, does it? It bypasses armor. That's what it does. That's what the gun did. It bypassed armor. In terms of damage, well, if I hack you half, you know, from you know halfway from your your shoulder to your um, sternum with a longsword, that's more damage than a bullet's going to do. Um, it's just cleaner damage in a sense. Um, it's not you know an explosion inside your body. So a gun that could do that sort of damage, let's let's call it a, a forty-five or something like that. Yeah, mm. that's going to be a D8. It's not an instant kill. Guns aren't instant kills. I mean, I've known enough people in the forces, and I've I've done enough research on um, weaponry and and violence and you know m- the modern application of it to know that most people who get shot with a gun don't die. And it's not necessarily that they get treated very quickly. It's it's that that guns do less damage than people think they do. And I think it's it's a it's a function of Hollywood that says it, it's almost like arrows. Arrows and guns uh, are the same thing. If one person gets hit with one arrow, they die. And it's the same deal. Someone gets hit with one bullet, they die. The difference is not the weapon being used. The difference is the person using it. That orc went down with one arrow because it was Legolas who shot the arrow. Um, yeah. because the story demands that they take out loads of people. Um, you know, you look at, um, 
I, I'm failing to think of um, action films now, but like you, you think of an action film where you know Arnold Schwarzenegger's wailing around him with a gun, and all of the people are dropping down, apparently dead. No, <laughs> the gun's not doing that. It's because Arnold Schwarzenegger is the star of this film. That's why that's happening. And so the, the damage that happens with with guns and things, if they hit you in the right place, yeah, it's a massive amount of damage, massive. But you're rarely going to hit some in the right place. I think Wyatt Earp himself uh, said, uh, if you actually wanted to kill someone, take a rifle, not a six-shooter. You know, you're never going to kill someone with a pistol because you'd aim towards them and you were lucky if you would hit anything on them at all. And if you did, you're not, you're not going to, you're not going to place that bullet any, in any particular place. I mean, I get that people have like studied and studied and studied, but people who are that good have dedicated their lives to that one thing. So it's a very hard thing to do. And especially in a pinch situation. Um, I, th- I think uh, one film that did that extremely well, although for the most part, the film is, has a ridiculous amount of unrealistic gunplay and it does have one particular scene in it that is quite good in which was the 2012 remake of red dawn mm-hmm. which i don't know if you've seen it i've not seen it okay it's got a long story short i think it's like north korea's taken over america and young college students or something are, are turned into freedom fighters but anyway they've just gone into town they've just gone around to all the local houses and everything and said have you got any guns left? Have you managed to squirrel anything away? And they come back to the base camp and they're looking at all. And one of the young lads kind of pulls out, and I believe it's a Tech 9, which is uh, it's the, the, the gun that Kurt Russell uses in Big Trouble in Little China. It's probably his most iconic use. But anyway, so he's going, oh my God, this is amazing. And he's, his older brother, who has actually been in the military, kind of takes one look at this thing and goes, oh God. So he kind of aims up at a tree, blasts off a couple of rounds, doesn't even hit the tree. <laughs> so he, he moves in like another like like three foot or whatever does it again doesn't hit anything does it again doesn't hit anything and then he eventually like manages to get like one bullet in the tree and then by the time he gets close enough that he's putting all the bullets pretty much in the tree he's like less than 10 foot away from this thing and his reaction to that is yeah we're going to need better guns <laughs> and it was a really nice kind of like slightly realistic moment in 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 talking about firearms and stuff is is that by introducing some reality into the weapons that you're using and what damage they can use and what range they can do actually makes the story more interesting because as a result of that they then have to think very cleverly about how they're going to ambush some soldiers at close range so they can actually nick their weapons that are better Hmm. yeah good story comes from limitations yes exactly um there's also this this conceit of um you know a man uh, a man with a gun is more dangerous than a man without i would dispute that um i would say is who's holding that gun and who's the person who's not killing someone is a difficult thing i think we've talked about this before in the podcast in various places killing something's a, a really difficult thing uh psychologically uh most people in the second world war for example as conscripts without much training would fire up or down and not straight towards the opponent yeah uh, I'll probably do an, uh, an episode on this because once I've got my uh, some what I'm hoping are my Christmas presents, um, Gerald, uh, on on killing and on combat, which are a really good breakdown of of that that idea. Um, I, 
So I was just going to say, I agree wholeheartedly with the um, it's it's who's holding the gun that counts in that I've done quite a bit of over the years of paintball and soft air gas gunning and stuff. And if you're up against someone who is um, running around, overexcited, not really thinking about what they're doing, you can quite calmly walk across uh, from like, you know, 15 foot while they're shooting at you and then not come anywhere near to actually hitting you. Yeah. I'd say as well, um, I know for reasons I'm not going to get into, I know that on a range, I am a very good shot with a variety of weapons. But I also know that when I'm actually in combat, say with a longsword, um, you know, I'm a very, very accurate with a longsword. I, I tend not to put my sword into people's eyes in, um, in my classes. Uh, I have a lot of control. But when I go fighting, suddenly I'm six inches out. Because the adrenaline's there, because there's threat, because it's chaos, um, and my sense of distance gets, you know, screwed up. So there's a massive, massive amount of difference between using something in a controlled environment, using something in a stressful environment, and using something in a life and death environment. Yeah. And I, I personally think that if I was given a gun and told, go out, do some killing, uh, in this war, or you're gonna die, I'm probably gonna die. Mm. So, uh, we'll, we'll call that a day on that one from Sabrina because yeah. all those will go on and on and on. Uh, I think that there's probably an entire episode in it. Um, but her second question is why are there not more enchanted personal weapons in 5e like brass knuckles, things like that? Really good question. You've got monks, monks who have unarmed strikes. Give them brass knuckles. I, I, I always see monks not as being, um, you know, actual like, uh, Shaolin, but as just being like brawlers. You know, a tavern fighter, for example, could easily be a monk. He just hits people. Um, I, I know one in real life. He's called Milo Thurston. He runs the uh, Lineacre School of Defense uh, down in Oxford. Uh, and he teaches people Hope's new method of uh, fighting, which is a uh, small sword. But he also does pugilism. And he's about six foot six, quite thin. He's, 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 a, he's a very slight chap, but very tall. And I've known people who are the shiznit. Um, at, you know, personal combat, box, be it boxing, MMA, um, you know, uh, street fighting, it, you name it. They go up against Milo and the only comment they have is, why is his fist always where I am? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and th- this is the most polite Englishman you could ever hope to meet. You know, he's, he's always, always apologizing for something and, and being very polite and very erudite and intelligent about how he does things. And so you'd never assume it, but I wouldn't, I just would not ever even just for fun for sparring i just wouldn't i would not because he's a monk if he if he wants to hit you once he can hit you five times and some of that's training and some of that's just natural ability so you know think about that sort of thing but yeah i I think they haven't done it maybe because they didn't think about it um but also maybe because there's maybe a cultural thing about that sort of thing. Um, they don't do many weapons that are actually banned in countries. For example, um, brass knuckles are banned in the UK. They're banned in, a, in an awful lot of places because they're easily concealable. Um, mm. But also in D&D, for example, you don't see things like balasongs. You don't see flick knives. You don't see self-concealing weapons. Um, even where that you could conceal a weapon, they don't give you the idea for it. And so maybe that's a political thing um, is, is my thought behind that. Um, because you don't want to make that sort of thing seem cool and that, you know, people of a suggestible age would, would want to have and do. Because if you want a longsword, you can have a longsword. That's fine. Stick on your wall, whatever you, um, 
but it's hard to carry those things in public. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you're going to get spotted very easily. Um, I, I know this from vast experience. Um, you are going to get spotted. Someone is going to call the police and things happen. I mean, I, I'm on speaking terms with our local police, you know, just taking things to mm-hmm. training. Um, I, so, very well. Sorry, I was just going to say, I, th- I think that idea of not wanting to make certain weapons is quite an interesting thought because i mean i'd love to be proven wrong on this but i can't imagine there's a huge amount of inner city teenagers that are you know playing D whilst then simultaneously going out and committing knife crime yeah it, it, it just strikes me as two kind of like the demographics are a bit don't yeah. Re- yeah are a bit out of whack but i can totally understand that being the logic behind why they've done that yeah and and, and why not you know it's it's fine um I don't think we're, we're losing anything, and people can always house rule things at the table. It, you know, that, that's absolutely fine. I mean, the, the yeah, Dungeon Master's Guide fun. makes it very clear: if you want a new weapon, if you want a, a new item, here's a system for creating things. But honestly, just go for it. Um, yeah. That's what the DMG does. It gives you a toolkit, and it says we're not going to legislate for absolutely everything that could possibly exist. You make it up. That's fine. Mm. Um, so it's a real strength of of D and D of this D and D edition. So, just as an afterthought as well, is if, if you look at, um, action films in the 80s, they show people breaking people's necks in a way that is very close to how you would actually do it. Um, I'm not going to show you how you do it. I'm not going to tell you, uh, because, um, it's educational. It's, <laughs> it's telling people that I kill people. And if you watch them through the 90s, that becomes slightly more abstract in terms of like where they put their hands and all that sort of stuff. And now it's the case where they just put their hands either side of someone's head, sneak up behind them and break their neck. You can't do it that way. The, the neck is far too strong a, a, a piece of equipment to be able to do that. Um, and the reason for that is not to sort of make action heroes seem stronger. It is so that they are not educating impressionable youth on how to do that because they were finding that people would see it in, um, in the cinema and then try it in a playground and, and actually yep. you know, hurt people. I, I can, yeah, I can personally speak, uh, 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 when I was in primary school, someone actually did that to me, and thankfully they just tried to do it like they do now. But yeah, if they if they'd done it else yeah. in any other kind of way, I might not be having yeah. the same kind of conversation that I am well, doing now. Unfortunately, uh, when I was young, um, if you if you uh, uh, tap into any martial artist, you'll find a story as to why they dedicated their lives to combat. Um, when I was little, um, someone did try that, and in, just in fun, it was just in play. Um, it was mm-hmm. some yep, some form of chokehold. You know, it wasn't someone being mean. It wasn't someone bullying me. It was just, you know, they did something and it turns out they did it right rather than doing it wrong. Um, and I ended up, uh, paralyzed for two hours in the middle of nowhere, um, dragged myself home and was then in hospital because the doctors thought I was probably going to die. <laughs> wow. So, uh, so yeah, uh, they, they, they'd sort of got to the, the end of it and said, uh, yeah, if that had been put on for another 30 seconds, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> so there you go. But just an accident, just because someone had seen something and had seen it done in kind of the right way. Mm. Uh, I've got five minutes to go and pick up my wife at the train station right now. So we're going to okay. hit the last thing really, really quickly. Uh, I'm just yes. going to talk um, Stories of the Fifth Age. Um, they're a podcast that talk about lots of RPG things. They're really cool. Uh, go find them. But one of the presenters there has a sign-off which says, remember, two swords are always better than one. And I said, uh, let's do an episode where I talk about why that's not the case. Um, the reason two swords are not better than one is uh, is you're generally talking about, in D&D, a simple cruciform hilt. You get a grip, a pommel, and a crossguard, and that's it. There's no other bits. Uh, no knuckle bows, no um, discs over the, the hand, and that sort of stuff. No, no sort of basket or cage around the hand. 
if I um, have two weapons, generally speaking, I'm going to sort of make a strike to someone's head, for example. I expose my hand, they're going to cut my hand. So if I have another weapon um, in, in my hand, what I'm doing is covering my hand with that. And if I have another sword, which is very heavy, um, to stick out and, and cover your hand with, it gets quite unwieldy. And then you've got a sword covering your sword as well as your hand, and it restricts what you can do. In, in just in terms of maneuvering. So if you have, um, if you look at uh, historical left hand or off hand weapon use, uh, it's generally a shield or a dagger. And the reason is because you can get those out of the way of your weapon once you've protected your hand. Mm. And, and that's, that's kind of where that goes. There are, um, dual wielding, uh, styles out there. Manchilino, for example, uh, is, is a, a very well known one where you use two side swords. But what you're talking about is a complex hilted weapon where you've got things that come down and protect your hand so that you can put your hand out there and not have to worry about what you're doing with the other sword because your, your hand is okay. So it, it, it very, there are styles of doing it. And, uh, if you, if you like, uh, sorry to sort of put this at the end and, and cut your short stories at the stage. Uh, but there are styles out there that allow for it. And essentially you guard with one and strike with the other at the same time. Or you say, everything coming on the right, I'm going to deal with this sword and attack with the other. Everything coming on the left, I'm going to deal with this sword, attack on the other. Um, or you say, this sword is for attack. This sword is for defense. And that's it. Uh, you can fight with two rapiers, two side swords, two back swords, uh, or sabers and things like that. Generally, people didn't because it's cumbersome to carry them. Um, you have to have them that are sort of pretty well matched. Um, and that's why we call it cased weapons or case of. You don't fight dual wielding rapiers. You fight case of rapier because they come together in one case, you know, in, in a box, literally. And that's what you use to fight with. It's, it's, it's too cumbersome to carry around generally. When you see people dual wielding in fantasy films and action films and stuff, uh, they're usually drawing from over their back because it's the only place to put them where they're not constantly clashing and getting in the way of the actor. But if you have a sword on your back, you can only have a sword that is as long as your arm from uh, your wrist to your shoulder because you can't draw it past that. Um, so yeah, uh, that that's why two swords generally aren't better than one. Unless you're in a very, very specific situation. Or have four arms. Or have four arms. If you're a Thrykreen, yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but then you'd have a sword and a dagger, and then another sword and a dagger. Maybe. Mm. I don't know. Um, so, on that note, I'm going to have to run, because I'm now going to be late to pick up the missus. <laughs> no. <laughs> All no right. problem. Sorry I had to end it there so quickly, but Biddy sent me a note just after this to say, to sum up, does reality have a place in role-playing games? And the answer is yes. But when it starts making things less fun, that's when to stop. And I'll add to that, reality isn't there to stop the fun happening. It's not someone saying, uh, I don't think you can do that in real life so you can't do it in this fantasy setting. It's more about adding to what you can do, adding to the fun at the table. We went through things quite quickly and not in lots of detail, so if you've got any questions based on what we said here, or if you've got entirely new questions, Get in touch with us. It's swordnutradio at gmail.com, swordnutradio at gmail.com, or on Twitter at swordnutradio. We've also got a Facebook page. Uh, we never really promote it, but we do have one. Um, so go find us on there and maybe ask a question. Whatever. As we announced last week, we've got a competition running. It's a do something creative and get some swordnut swag competition. And we're trying to think of a snappier title. Maybe thinking of a snappier title can be your competition entry. Who knows? 
It could be based on stuff that we've done, so it could be in-world fanfiction, it could be a, a character art or memes or something based on what we've done in 5e, in the one-shots, in inspectors, whatever you like. Or it could be something completely unrelated, just something, anything that will make us feel things. Because we're hollow and dead inside. We want to laugh, we want to cry, we want to hurl. So send your submissions to swordnutradio at gmail.com. That's swordnutradio at gmail.com. If it's short and sweet, maybe use Twitter. But the Gmail is probably the best way to do it. Submissions will be read out on air. Uh, images submitted will be tweeted and Facebooked and stuff. But if you want to write something and you really don't want it read on air or, or you know, you're self-conscious about it, then that's fine. Drop us a note just saying that and we'll read it amongst ourselves and we'll maybe do a summary of it or something um, and, and what we thought of it. So I'll sign off. Thanks for listening. And yes, I did get to the train station on time.